this is Jada and Emlyn with another episode of Stories Behind the Scrubs. On this podcast, we interview medical professionals in order to get a better idea of what it is they do and why they do it. We also listen as they tell us their story, recounting how they chose to go into medicine. On today's episode of Stories Behind the Scrubs, we're going to be talking to Dr. Tammy Graham, an optometrist working towards establishing a private practice. good how are you I'm good so um generally we like to start off the podcast um just kind of asking what your interests were as a high school student since that's where we are in our lives right now okay um I started high school in San Jose California and I started there very briefly several weeks I had some family issues and I had to move to Louisiana so I moved to Louisiana I was in high school there and then the semester before graduation, I moved back to San Jose. So I kind of went to three different schools when I was in high school. Um, so it was, it was awkward. It's awful. I don't recommend moving high schools in your senior year because you're graduating with a bunch of people you don't know. Um, but that's here nor there. When I was in high school, I was um, really interested in healthcare. As a matter of fact, I was interested in healthcare ever since I was about maybe in third fourth grade, for sure, I wanted to be a pediatrician when I was in fifth grade. Um, so healthcare was always uh, part of my life. But when I was in high school, um, one of the one of the special programs that the school did was kind of like an entrepreneurship program where you could earn credit going to work and taking classes that focused on business and just overall entrepreneurship, especially if you wanted to be a a business owner. And the teacher I had then, she was an amazing teacher that just really um, got me interested in other things, not just healthcare, but also just kind of um, being an entrepreneur. She was really, she she was, she believed in um, the entrepreneurship system, especially here in the United States. If you had an idea and your idea was cool and you know, there were enough people that were interested, you could really make a good living for yourself. And um, she, she really just pushed this idea of working hard and coming up with something that's your own and just kind of building something that you could um, really live off of. Um, and I really liked the idea of just kind of being um, creative with your future. Um, and that's, that, that kind of took me into a, a kind of different, um, a little bit of a different uh, direction for a bit. But, um, you know, it wasn't, I just wasn't creative enough to actually come up with anything on my own. So then I veered back to healthcare. Um, and that's kind of where, where I was in high school. Yeah. Um, well, that's super interesting that you were able to have those experiences in high school. Ours is a little bit similar. Um, right now I'm following like our medical track. Mm-hmm. So they offer lots of different medical courses for each year. And this year I just got my certificate like my certification for clinical medical assisting and Good. basic life support. Um, and so that should help me next year because the next level is uh, your patient care tech certification. And so that's kind of kind of similar to how yours is more like on the business side. Um, mine focuses more on the medical side. And so definitely interested in medicine and trying to follow that um, passion. Uh, but it seems like you also had an interest um, in both business and medicine as a high schooler, right? Mm -hmm. So what were you thinking was like your career path at the time? 
you know, to be honest with you at the time, how, what I wanted to do and what I had to do to help my family were so different. Um, so at the time, part of the family emergency was my sister had a business in Louisiana. Um, she had a salon, she had a beauty salon and she also was part of the, um, shrimping industry. So they were the two businesses that she owned and she basically bit off more than what she could handle. Um, and at the time I was kind of going through your typical teenage angst. And I grew up in San Jose, California, where it's an incredibly populous place. And you just kind of feel like you're that small fish in a really big ocean. And I wanted to change. It was a scary change, but I, I agreed with her that, um, if I went and helped her, that I could kind of just kind of focus a little bit more on my studies and kind of ex explore different things is at the time, my parents didn't believe in going to school and working. And I've always wanted to work. Um, I come from a very traditional family where growing up, my parents just wanted us to focus on school. They feared that if we went and got a paycheck that we would only want to go out and spend that money rather than um, save that money. Um, so of course, when you're young, you're spending a lot, you get yourself in trouble and you kind of lose sight on why you go to school at that age. And so um, my sister and I convinced my parents that, um, you know, to let me move. And so I, I myself bit off more than what I thought I could choose, uh, chew. So when I went and lived with her, um, she was like, okay, well, you're not just gonna work in this salon, you're gonna manage it. I'm like, what's a 15 year old going to do to manage a business? Um, but she led the way. And at the time, um, you know, I didn't know that I was good at managing people until I realized I was good at managing people. I guess so many times when, when you're being told, Hey, you could do this, you can build something from the ground up and you could come up with innovative ideas to help people um, expand it within their job responsibilities and help them enjoy your job and, you know, make basically be very successful and keep the lights on, pay yourself and pay your staff. I had no idea. I just was told, this is your job. This is what you're going to do. And you just should do it. And so um, that kind of that kind of put healthcare on the back burner for a little bit. And um, but in the back of my mind, I knew that no matter how long it took, I was going to veer back into healthcare because that's really what I wanted to do. Um, and that's kind of and that's kind of that with high school. That's how I got there. Um, and then, of course, you know, when I wasn't working for my sister, let's say she did bring in someone else, an assistant to basically take over my job. If I needed some time off, I, I am a very anxious person. I always need to be doing things. So I would go and like work at the mall. I would just find something to do, or I went and be, I volunteered for a doctor. I mean, I just, I always stayed busy. And if it wasn't for volunteering for a doctor, I would volunteer at an animal shelter or something. I always stayed busy. Um, and I think over the years in high school, that just kind of helped me direct myself towards what I like and helped me find out what it was I didn't like, what I didn't want to do my entire lifetime. Yeah, well, your ability to keep yourself busy all the time um, is definitely helpful when trying to figure out what you want to try in life. Yeah, so since um, we just finished talking about high school, um, what would you say was the biggest difference for you? It could be either for um, like in school itself or just social changes around you. What would you say was the biggest difference between um, high school and college? 
Um, well, we'll start with the social changes. As far as the social changes, it wasn't a huge difference for me, really. Um, unfortunately, in high school, I kept myself so busy outside of school um, with work and volunteer and then back to work again. I, I had friends, but I didn't have friends that um, I spent, I was able to spend a whole lot of time with. So, and I was telling Jada earlier that my high school years were a little bit odd in that I moved to several different states um, and I went to three different schools. I don't recommend that, but um, it, it really changes how closely you could become or become friends um, with your friends, how closely you, you could um, spend time with them if you're kind of all over the place. So I, so that was hard for me. Um, and I kind of, I kind of felt like I was a little bit of a loner in, in high school. And so I was able to focus on my studies a little bit more. I was able to focus on kind of work a little bit more. Same thing in high in college. So what was very similar in college is I never stopped working. I, even though I was working, um, sometimes part-time so part-time was about anywhere from 20 to about 30 hours a week with a, a pretty full schedule um, I would take in a semester anywhere from 17 to about 20 units so I was spread pretty thinly and somehow I managed to volunteer through all of that so college was just really an extension of myself and I learned over the years as I've gotten older too that it was my way of Staying busy was my way of coping with the idea of not knowing what I wanted to do with my life. Um, again, I was telling Jada earlier that I've always wanted to be in healthcare, but healthcare is such a broad term. You could do a lot of things in healthcare. Um, and unfortunately for me, and I think it's great that you guys could have a, um, a, a medical track when you're in high school. If I had that, I think it would have helped me hone in on what it was I wanted to do. But since I didn't have that, I just kind of really kept busy so that I wouldn't stress out about what I needed to do going forward, if that makes sense. Yeah, I completely understand. Um, while we're kind of on the same track, you know, what um, what did you major in in high school, in college, of course? And, you know, what was the like dramatic shift in like deciding what you wanted to do? Um, I mean, clearly you knew that you liked medicine, but you did a lot of like management and working um, like in business while you were in high school? Yeah. Um, so I was always really within healthcare. Um, it was either between pediatric care. So becoming a pediatrician and taking the medicine track or taking the medicine track, but focusing on psychiatry. So the other thing that I really um, find fascinating is just the human character, how, who we are as individuals, how we interact with one another and how we can so differently perceive the same situation. And it's all based on sort of our life experiences, where we come from, who we are, who we interact with, and what our just kind of overall exposures are over time. I just find all of that really fascinating. Um, I myself was going through some pretty major teenage angst. I was just, you know, I, I stayed busy, but I would say I was not a happy teenager at all. I was not a happy young adult. Um, I always felt like I was misunderstood. I always felt like um, I stayed really busy, but it almost seemed like it didn't really amount to a whole lot. So I was pretty hard on myself. I did, probably didn't have the most positive self-image 
at the time. And, um, you know, it's just the psychology behind that, the sociology behind that was really intriguing to me. So I started reading a lot of um, psychology articles and psychology books. And so when I started college, I majored in psychology. Um, with a medicine emphasis. And um, I, I stayed on that track. I graduated with the degree, um, with a bachelor's degree in psychology. But the whole time I was focused on medicine because I was dead set um, on entering an MD, PhD program. So I did a lot of research. I did a lot of psychology research when I was in college too. Um, and, you know, that helped me discover whether or not I was interested in research more or the clinical track more. And I, and through that, I realized I was more interested in the clinical track. So uh, probably in my third year, my junior year, of um, college, I realized that research really wasn't for me. I was, I was decent at it. I was good at it. I just wasn't passionate about it. Um, and, and how I discovered that was one of my jobs as a research assistant was to write proposals for research projects. And um, I realized that sometimes what it is that you want to research isn't necessarily what you're gonna be able to get funding for. And that kind of broke my heart a little bit, um, just because I was kind of like, you know, you're, you're kind of doe-eyed and you think, okay, well, if you're interested in it, everybody else has got to be interested in too. But then you learn, okay, this is what you need to do. This, these are the research paradigms that you need to focus on to be able to get funding. And that was probably the first time in my life, in my adult life, that I realized that sometimes things that you want don't necessarily match up with what's available out there as far as funding, because you can't self-fund. There's just not enough money to do that. And so you do have to come up, come to some realization that sometimes what you want isn't what reality is going to offer you. Um, so I dropped that. And so the only thing I focused on was the clinical track. And so at the time, um, I did a lot of volunteering. I volunteered as a mental health counselor as well just kind of a really basic mental health counselor where I, can, where I counseled a lot of um, primarily young, young women um, of all ages, but lots of teenagers, lots of young women in their 20s and 30s who have been um, emotionally, physically, and sexually abused. And that was a lot um, at that time. And um, I really enjoyed it. It was a volunteer job that I looked forward to, um, to look forward to. It was, it was every other weekend. I would be, and I took the night shift. So it was a 24 hour hotline that you would, volu you would volunteer. So people would call in and um, they, you would take different shifts. And so during the day I was either in class or I was working with an actual job. And so I would take like the night shift, you know, Friday night from, you know, 11 o'clock at night all the way to about five o'clock in the morning. So I didn't sleep very much, but I was in, in, in college either. So I took that and, um, that, that was also very revealing to me. It got, in the beginning, it was easy, but there were certain cases where um, they were very hard. Um, I struggle with, with certain um, cases that, and I won't dive into it, but um, it was hard. A lot of the, a lot of the callers, um, unfortunately, based on their voices, because some of them called so much, I did actually recognize them in the community. And that was really hard for me. I realized that I just didn't have the mental and the emotional fortitude to continue doing something like that. Um, it really affected me tremendously. And I, and I have deep, deep respect for people who are working in the, um, in recovery, rehabilitation and mental health 
um, settings, I really do have deep respect for them because they're able to sort of mentally and emotionally navigate that. Um, unfortunately, I realized after about a year and a half of doing that, I didn't have it in me anymore. It was it was really affecting my overall um, personal life. I wasn't quite myself. And um, I had to, again, come to another realization that that's not something that's for me. And it broke my heart because, you know, you're dead set on something and you think you can do it. But I think part of becoming an adult is also it's not just taking on things that you want to do and hope to accomplish, but it's also realizing your limitations, because um, at some point those limitations will catch up to you. And if you're not mentally prepared to just accept it and make do with what you couldn't do and learn how to how to expand and focus on something else that you could do. Um, I think it creates a lot of mental distress that some that I was just afraid if I was too deep in, I wouldn't be able to get out of. Um, so in my junior year, I kind of just floated around for a little bit. And of course, I needed work. I needed money. I needed I needed a job, too. And, and at the time, um, the job that I was um, that I was uh, working for, I was working for a, rehabilita uh, a rehab uh, rehabilitation clinic where we work with um, physically disabled individuals to try to um, expand their, their um, mobility. And that was pretty good, um, but uh, I had some injuries working, um, doing that. You, know, you have to be fit, pretty physically um, fit to do something like that. And I just, I did something stupid and, and I just realized, okay, well, this is probably not gonna be good for me. And I stuck with that for about, three years. Um, and so I, I put in my, um, my request for resignation and I found a different job and this job was, um, so I went to school at UC Berkeley and I would drive. So this other job was actually in San Francisco. So I take, I would take the, um, the bridge over and it was a job for an optometry assistant. And I was like, okay, well, that's something I haven't done. Cause at that time I already volunteered in dentistry, general medicine, um, you know, pediatric medicine. And, you know, they were, they were all good. They just, I don't know. I just didn't, I, I don't know. It just didn't, it didn't click with me. Um, and so I interviewed and I, I started working for um, Dr. Eunice Kurt Bay and he, he was just so fascinating. Um, at the time, I really didn't know a whole lot about optometry and um, I was always really, really curious. And I just kind of thought, okay, well, you wear glasses, that's it. Um, but working with him made me realize that there's so much more to vision than it's than just a pair of glasses. He really understood how um, anatomy, physiology, and your overall general health affects how you see. And I just I just didn't know that. Um, and in my senior year, so I stuck with that for about a year. In my senior year, um, I needed some extra curricular um, units to be able to graduate. So I took this class, it was actually a vision science class. And um, it was a class to learn about optometry. Um, and, you know, just unbeknownst to me at the time, and I, I should have known better, um, UC Berkeley had a school of optometry. I had no idea. You know, you're just like, okay, well, I'm an undergrad. I'm gonna be going to medical school. I'm studying for the MCAT. This is what I'm focused on, all my prerequisites were for medical school. And so, okay, I was like, okay, well, I'm working for an eye doctor and 
um, you know, here's this class, it's three units, it seems interesting enough, and there's enough science there um, to kind of make it worth it. So I signed up for the class and I, I fell in love with it. I really, I really liked it. And so um, I, I took a test. It was, I can't remember what it was. It was like the second test. And there was a question on it that bothered me. I, I couldn't, I didn't understand. Um, it was a relationship between the pupil, light. Anyways, it's, I, I won't bore you with the details here, but um, I went and had a meeting with a professor. And I said, professor, you know, I'm really bothered by this. And I asked him a plethora of questions. And, you know, he gave me a plethora of answers. And he's like, you know, what do you, what do you want to do? You're in your senior year. What are you, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, well, I'm on the medical track. I'm working for an optometrist right now. And he said, well, you know, I think you should continue working for the optometrist for a little bit longer. Maybe you'll find optometry interesting. And if you're interested, I can write you a letter of referral. That was, I think, the second time I went and had a meeting with him. And I didn't think I would do so well in the class. I did really do well in the class. And, and what I really liked about the class was it was a bunch of your, your STEM sciences put together. So it's anatomy, physiology, um, biology, and um, optics, physical optics, physics. Um, the optics part of physics was in it. And I found everything, you know, both from our human world, our physiologic animal world with, I mean, hard sciences like math and physics, you can't beat that. Um, and I just continue working in that. And actually after college, um, I didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't figure out where I wanted to go if I wanted to apply to med school or optometry school. Um, and it was, it was kind of neck and neck. And so I decided I would just work with um, Dr. Kurt Bay for another year. And so I worked for Dr. Kurt Bay for another year. And um, at the time I graduated with my undergrad already from undergrad. And um, I just kind of felt like work wasn't enough. And at the time, gas prices were going really high. Um, I, I lived in San Jose and I was commuting to San Francisco, which was about an hour, sometimes it's sometimes an hour and a half commute freeway the whole time. And at the time we were paying, oh gosh, I was maybe paying like $4.75 gas, which sadly right now isn't very far from what we're paying. Um, but it got to a point where I couldn't afford it anymore. So I started working for a different doctor um, in San Jose, it's optometry. Um, and, you know, same thing, really great experience. And that made me realize, you know what, if I, if I quit a job in that field and I picked up another job in the same field, maybe my, you know, some, something is telling me this is where, this is the path I should, I should take. And um, I took that path and here I am. So, yeah, well, it seems like just like in high school, you were able to try a ton of different things in college um, that ultimately led you to what you were really interested in. Um, but kind of going back a little bit to while you were in college, uh, what would you say were some of the skills that you developed during those years that have helped you become as successful as you are now? Um, I think just the ability to juggle everything. I had to learn to classify things in three primary groups, what was most important, what was somewhat important, but could be done afterwards. And then there was everything else. Um, and I think I was really lucky in that I surrounded myself with a few friends um, that I had and family members that were incredibly understanding of um, how thinly I spread myself. Um, and they knew that I liked it better that way. They, they respected it. And I never... 
I didn't feel a lot of pressure to do things that I didn't want to do. For example, um, you know, for social outings or or family events, my family members were really kind to schedule things around my schedule. Um, And let's say if I had to leave leave a little early or a little late, I always had reasons. So I never slacked off. It wasn't because I overslept or I just didn't want to go. It was, I I always had something before and after. Um, And so my family was really supportive of that. Um, And that allowed me to just kind of help formulate um, things that were, again, just like what I was saying earlier, most important, somewhat important, and then least important. And I was able to multitask that way just by categorizing everything in those groups. And, you know, it's true. Sometimes you just are, all you're doing is you're buying yourself time, right? Primarily because there's only so much you can do in a given day. We have 24 hours and I'm someone who truly believes now as an adult, um, I, I truly believe you do need your sleep. Um, and we can get into the you know, physiologic and immunologic reparative um, aspects of sleep. Sleep is so good for you. And I know you guys as high school students, as patients, of mine, you're not getting your sleep, but I highly recommend that you get that going because part of, um, you know, this is kind of jumping ahead, but you know, one of the things I really love about optometry, the vision sciences is vision is highly influenced by a lot of factors. One of which is lack of sleep. you have muscles around your eyes that stay in focus? And if you haven't slept very well, sometimes your vision comes in and out of focus. Sometimes your vision, when you first get up in the morning, it's just flat out blurred. When you're young, you might not notice it, but once you hit your twenties, you really start to notice how vision affects how your eyes overall feel as far as dryness in the morning, even red eyes, um, computer vision syndrome is a real problem where you have a combination of red, dry, irritated eyes that burn, eyes that come in and out of focus especially now, I mean, we've got the same symptoms that are reported, you know, with kids, eight, nine, 10 years old with them being on the computer. And I bet you, if I surveyed the both of you guys, you guys would probably have said yes to all of those symptoms. Um, But sleep, especially when you're young, helps to recover a lot of that dryness, a lot of that eye fatigue. Um, And, you know, I actually, I started believing in sleep when I was going through optometry school. And so with optometry school, very similar to medical school, you're spread pretty thinly. You're expected to um, volunteer. You're expected to train in your clinical skills and um, train your clinical skills after hours before your practicals. And then you're supposed to, once you get into your second year, you're going into clinicals. And on top of all of that, you have to study, you have to go to your, to your didactic courses. Then you have to study to pass those courses. And there's just a lot of studying involved and there's not enough hours in the day. Um, and I realized there were some classes, there were just some classes that I just didn't really like, um, that I just, things just didn't click. And, um, I realized if I took naps throughout the study day, and then of course sleep for at least seven to eight hours, I was able to consolidate that information a little bit better, or at the very least I was less anxious because I was getting the sleep. And I came to terms with the fact that there were some things that I was good at that it was easy for me to study and remember um, and expand upon. And there were just certain things I just couldn't get. And I just, in those classes, it wasn't worth it for me to like beat myself up and try to kill myself. 
Um, and so some of those classes went into my somewhat important box. And then the, the classes that I was really good at, that became my most important. Um, and then the other thing too, is how I distinguish between the two classes was I asked myself every single day I was sitting in class, do these classes pertain to what I'll be doing when I'm in clinic? And because I worked in optometry, I knew what it was that my doctor, um, my doctor constantly referenced. There were certain things that you needed to know, just like you guys are learning right now. There are certain things you just need to know for your MCAT to be able to get into medical school. There are certain things you need to know down to the gritty, the nitty gritty, like the Krebs cycle to be able to pass your MCAT. Um, but once you get into clinical practice, all you need to do, you don't forget about it, but you just need to remember where to look it up, when to look it up, and how does it apply to your clinical skills and in your decision-making, your, your decision-making when you're working with your patients. And so that kind of, I don't like seeing things like that, but that really is the reality when you get out of school. You just can't do everything all at the same time. Maybe you want to, but you will, you're not going to enjoy life as much, you know? And I know you guys are, have a question about life and, and um, school life and, and work-life balance and, and life balance in general. We'll, we'll get there. It's, it's definitely a challenge going forward, even, even as an adult, um, an older adult, you're still, you're still trying to balance things, but that's just life though. As long as when you realize that's just life, life will be easier. Yeah. I mean, that, that's some incredible advice. I think um, a lot of students today, you know, especially in the environment that we've put ourselves in could definitely you yeah. know, take to heart and truly they might, you know, I say they, but it's us too. We might see some improvement in both mental health and how we're performing in school if we just took the time to prioritize sleep. So I completely agree with you on that. And you began to talk about um, optometry school. And I was just curious, um, you mentioned you were split, you had the split decision before you of optometry school and medical school. Mm -hmm. What was your um, final deciding factor? What finally pushed you to optometry? Um, so first off, I don't know if I mentioned earlier, but the prerequisites for optometry and medical school were exactly the same. So that helped out, um, greatly. The only difference was in optometry school, you take the OAT and then for medical school, you take the MCAT. And so, um, I think what the deciding factor was, um, I went to a talk with, it was, it was like, um, you know, it's like the student, the, the, the students medical association, and they brought in a very, a young oncologist. She was um, an oncologist and she focused on um, the colon and she just finished uh, medical school. She finished medical school. She finished her training and she's now in clinical practice and she's at, she's at a hospital. And at the time I just got, I mean, I was like on the brink of um, graduation and um, when I went to this class, at the very end, I stayed behind and I asked her one question um, about sort of life balance, work, school, life balance. Of course, she was already done with school. Um, and even about three years from being done with all of her training and out in clinical practice, she was honest. She said she was still struggling with that. And I don't know, for whatever reason, that just really stuck with me. Um, that just made me really question whether or not medicine was for me. 
And at the same time, it was a combination of things. At the same time, of course, I was still focused on getting my psychology degree. I was doing some research there um, towards the very tail end of your, your psychology degree. Um, you, you've accumulated, I've accumulated enough classes to start taking um, clinical psychology. So um, I took a bunch of clinical psychology courses. And one of the things, sadly, that I realized was I wasn't really curing mental health issues. Um, and I don't know what it was, but I became a different person towards the end. I became more of a con concrete solution seeker. And for whatever reason, I just didn't think that um, mental health care at the time, and I've been out of it for so long that I don't even know if anything has changed. And I hope that if it's changed, it's gotten better. I just felt like at the time, um, there were a lot of things we didn't understand about human mental health, that a lot of our treatment strategies, and maybe it was just the program, maybe it was just the professors um, that, that focused on different aspects of mental health treatment. Um, I kind of felt like I wasn't going, it, the, the, that a lot of the things that were taught to me weren't as effective in allowing people to resolve their mental health issues and, and giving them the tools to be able to navigate life without having some degree of dependency on their psychologist or their medications, either or or both. And I felt like, again, just like how the year before when I was still volunteering um, in that mental health setting, I kind of felt like I lost my effectiveness as someone who could provide mental health services to the patient base. Um, and that was, that was probably the, the hardest, the most painful realization I had to come to. Um, and I, I, it, that made me realize the only other thing that I still enjoyed was optometry and it pushed me towards that direction more. Um, and I know that there's, you know, at, Earlier, I, I talked about um, pediatric medicine and um, in some of my, I, I veered away from that when I started volunteering in the hospital setting. And I realized um, I put kids, it's really frustrating, but I put kids in this really positive, really cutesy pedestal. And again, it was hard for me to see them so sick. I mean, you, you take care of these kids in the burn units or you take care of these kids that are undergoing chemo treatment. It was really, really hard. Um, and I always kind of saw myself as a mother figure, even, even though funny now I don't have kids, but I have seven nieces and nephews and I'm seven years older than my youngest sister. I actually do remember going to the hospital with my dad to bring home my mom and my baby sister after she um, was released um, from labor. And I, I just kind of, I have this very positive image of kids and yes, they get sick and stuff, but you know, I was thinking at the time, be, wanting to be a pediatrician, I was thinking, oh, well, they'll scrape themselves, they'll cut themselves, maybe they'll break a bone and I'll just kind of, you know, or fracture a bone and I'll fix them. Or if they get a little cold or something, I'll treat them. I, I just wasn't ready for the burn unit. 
And I wasn't ready for um, the harder things like oncology where life and death really was a real thing um, for some of these kids and some of these families. And, you know, to be quite honest with you, I chickened out. And that's why I tell you guys, you know, sometimes knowing what you want to do also means knowing what you can't do or don't want to do. And I don't, I mean, I say chickened out as though I'm a coward, but I would rather have realized it early on than to take on a whole medical program focused on pediatric oncology or, you know, or pediatrician in general and am limited in how I can approach a situation because I can't take my heart out of it. Even though in medicine, you have to have heart, but sometimes you realize that if you're too emotional, you can't treat a patient um, objectively. You, you really can't treat their condition um, objectively. So that, that was hard, but um, I, had to, I, I had to basically woman up and realize what I could do and what I couldn't do. So um, that's what really pushed me towards optometry. Yeah, I think especially um, how you're talking about knowing what you can and can't do is a super important part of picking where you want to go in the medical field. Because I know if you had asked me or even probably Emlyn, like even a year ago, our answers would have been completely different from what they are now. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And so that's kind of part of the reason why we're doing this podcast is just to kind of figure out like, what are we interested in or who's doing stuff that we might have an interest in? Um because at least for me, I've never thought of optometry before, but after this podcast, that could be like a serious possibility um, just because we know more about it. Um, but I did want to ask, because at least when I go to, uh, to the practice, it seems like it's a private practice. Is that mm -hmm. your private practice or? It's not. So it's not my private practice. I'm actually in the process of building my own private practice, also in the Woodlands area. Um, so I'll be working there some, and then I'll be working out of my own office. And so that like kind of circles back to this entrepreneurship mind that I developed really early on. Um, so part of my, so in high school, I held a lot of jobs. Oh, and at some point I had a job in mortgage lending. So I don't know if you guys know about the housing bubble burst in 2008. Um, it's it was it it really created a lot of problems in our um, in our market and led to a really long recession. Um, but anyways, so I won't get into that, but I was into mortgage lending because I thought maybe I could do that on the side. So my older sister, my another sister I had, she has um, she, she has a, a mortgage lending real estate business and she needed some help. So I was working for her part-time and then I was working for Dr. Kurt Bay, the optometrist in San Francisco and going to school at the same time. So <laughs> that was interesting times. Um, but, you know, it kind of, it, I, it kind of, I kind of liked it because it tapped into that little bit of entrepreneurship that I didn't know I had in me, that I had in me only because I'm a little bit of a control freak. So, you know, that's, that, that that's the other thing you, you have to hone in on what you know is you and you have to expand on it. Not that it's a bad thing or anything, but I like process. Um, and so I, when I was in, um, of course, optometry school, I worked for two private and college. I worked for two private practices. And then um, when I left optometry school, so right now in our optometry program, you have the option of taking on either a residency program or a fellowship 
the terminology is a little bit different in optometry school than medical school, because in medical school, when you go through um, your residency, you're not like fully fledged licensed to practice on your own. Whereas in optometry school, you are. So optometry school, you take your boards all throughout your, your uh, four years. So it's separated, if I remember correctly, it's three parts. There's didactic, and then there's um, your um, more of your didactic with a little bit of clinical, and then your full clinical where you fly to a location to get licensed, to get your, your, your board's um, license. So you can submit that license to your subsequent state that you'll be licensed in to practice. And so when I graduated optometry school, I got my license, but throughout optometry school, um, I developed an interest in um, cornea and contact lens. So, and I can go into that a little bit more, um, but the, but your eyes work like a camera system. The lights enter your eye. First, it enters through your tear film. A lot of people don't think of that as the first refractive surface, but it is if you have really dry, irritated, allergy prone eyes, your tear film is gonna be full of mucus and you don't see very well. So that's the first refractive surface. The second refractive surface is the cornea, which is that clear tissue in front of your iris. Um, and the cornea is collagen tissue that is laid and deposited in an incredibly beautiful fashion. It's clear tissue. And I'm like, seriously, I'm interested in clear tissue that's avascular. It has no, it has no blood vessels, but if it gets scarred up, you can't see. And I just, I found that to be so fascinating. It literally is a clear cap in front of your eye and it glistens if it catches the light right. Um, and I found myself in optometry school in a clinic that uses hard contact lens and specialty contact lens technology to recover that surface. And um, I got really good at it, even though I didn't think I was. I loved the math behind it. I loved the technology in that you could put a cap on the eye. So if you really think about it, if you put an artificial thing on a tissue to recover function, that's like a prosthetic. And yeah, if you can kind of think about it that way. And this is kind of totally sidetracked. So um, my family came here as immigrants and my dad fought in the Vietnam War. And unfortunately he has war injuries. And um, one of his war injuries is an amputation of his left leg. So he has a prosthetic leg. And for whatever reason, I found contact lenses working as a prosthetic to be just like, I felt like home. It's so crazy. Um, and I continued on with that. So I entered a specialty clinic within optometry school that recovered vision um, in individuals who are born with um, degenerative um, congenital collagen tissues, tissue issues um, that happen to have degraded their cornea. Or we um, handle cases where it was post-traumatic. We had like veterans, for example, who experienced injuries um, and you know it, it hit their cornea. So we were using specialty lenses as prosthetics to recover their visual function. Um, and I really liked that a lot. I just, I wanted to learn more about this tiny little clear tissue that if it was all messed up, you just couldn't see. So um, at the time they had residency programs where you could extend your learning, but you're licensed. So you could work after hours if you wanted to. And so I applied to different programs and the program that stood out the most to me was the cornea and contact lens program, um, extended study program at the University of Houston. They have a school of optometry down there too. 
Um, and part of the program was also a teaching program. So I kind of, that was new for me being able to teach. Um, and so I kind of honed in on, in on that a little bit too, but I worked in there in the clinical setting where I honed in on uh, my skills treating very specific corneal diseases with therapeutic lenses. Um, and I really liked that a lot. At that time, on the weekends, I also did a lot of work floating around. Um, so I worked in the hospital settings. So a lot of my study, a lot of my training involved um, community health centers, VA centers. I was also at an active duty Air Force base. Um, I worked at other hospitals as well, um, nonprofit and profit hospitals. Um, and the only setting that I didn't work in was your typical corporate setting, like. Um, your America's Best or your Lens Crafters um, and, and whatnot. So on the weekends, I would moonlight. Um, I would work at those places. And that actually helped to generate a little bit of an income because as a resident, you're not really making a whole lot. I think it's like it was it was barely enough to pay rent. Um, and my husband at the time, he was just he was such a blessing. He, he was just like, OK, you want to extend an extra year after going to school for so long and not making any money? and getting all these student loans, sure, go ahead. We're moving to Texas, okay. So, so um, we found ourselves out here and you know, I, I got to know quite a few doctors that were just so amazing at helping me hone in on what type of practice setting I wanted to be in. And so um, the ones I did actually moonlight at some private practices and the ones that really, um, really, got me interested were the private practices where the doctor was able to make all the decisions both on the administrative side and on the patient care side without having to go to another individual that just kind of sits at their desk and makes decisions on when you're going to see a patient for what you're going to see a patient and you know all that stuff so all of the doctrine the administrative stuff was in-house made by the doctor and I have yet to come. So the doctors are always going to make the decision that's best for the patients, for their ability to care for the patients and for their practice, because you do have to balance the administrative side. Um, all hospitals do this, you know, but whether nonprofit or profit hospital, I volunteered for some nonprofit organizations that need certain funding and the funding has to be allocated a certain way. And that's the other thing. That was something that I was not taught um, all throughout my pre-med years in undergrad. I was not taught um, any kind of administrative um, or financial sort of planning in optometry school. Yeah, you get some, but thinking back on it, it was so ridiculous to think if you're gonna borrow that hundreds of thousands of dollars to go and get a graduate degree, without very little means of man money management skills, that's hard. That's really hard to swallow. Um, but luckily because I worked and um, my husband is not in healthcare, he's in finance. He made me realize that if I was, if I were to be a good doctor, if I were to be a good entrepreneur, if I was to go into private practice, I need to be better about my own finances, where my own financial um, skills are going to be able to not only allow me to open a private practice, but also to maintain a private practice so that all of our employees will have a job to go to, will also have a paycheck to get, and we'll be able to turn on the lights so that we can see patients for the next day.
if that makes sense. That was something that's something that should have been obvious, but isn't. It's not taught in school. I think you get some of it, but you don't get down to the nitty gritty and it could be very overwhelming. Um, but because I, I worked so much in different settings, I moonlit so much in different settings, especially after I got licensed that the most comfortable setting I felt was in, was in the private practice where I had more control of the underlying and overlying administrative processes than in more like corporate larger type settings where I had to always go to someone else to get something done, even though I'm the one and my assistants, my nurse assistants, my medical assistants are the ones with boots on the ground who know what will work for our clinic for our schedule, for our patients, and to guarantee that positive patient outcome that every patient deserves when they come into our doors. Um, so private practice was what I was able to find that, where I was able to find that balance. Yeah, I think that's really insightful and definitely something that a lot of doctors who choose to, who choose to have a private practice would have to consider, even though it's beyond the realm of like directly medicine itself, medicine, um, mm -hmm. optometry itself. Um, yeah. And, uh, you had mentioned that, you know, you're trying to move towards a private practice, which means, and even what you're doing right now, I'm sure you're seeing dozens of cases every day. So surely, um, you know, there's definitely at least like one type of case that stands out to you, you know, what are the most like common cases that you see on a daily basis? Um, yeah, so I'm in private practice now. So the practice that I'm building will, will be just like the one I'm at right now. Um, probably the most common cases. So we, we are primary care. We see all patients. We see patients from the age of five to 105. So I see pediatrics. I see young adults like you guys. I see older adults. Um, I see retirees and I see geriatric population. So I pretty much see everybody. Um, and I, I would say every single group will have their own sort of um, cases that stand out. For example, in the pediatric population, I'm seeing a lot more eye fatigue, headaches induced with device use, um, reading tracking issues, like for example, um, young eyes ability, well, all of our eyes ability to, for example, read a paragraph, our eyes ability to run from the left to the right, move diagonally, and then do it all over again, left to right. So that kind of Z pattern is something that's developed real early on. Um, as early as from the time you're born and it continues to develop all the way through your early years up to about the age of 10. Um, and so young kids, because the way we use our eyes now, um, it's less farsighted, it's more nearsighted. Some of their tracking ability is disrupted. And so I'm seeing a lot more of that. Um, we, you know, in the clinical setting, we recommend, oh, hey, you gotta take breaks. Believe it or not, blue light glasses actually do help. And, um, you know, getting off devices a little bit earlier in the day, uh, studies upon studies have demonstrated that, especially for young patients, if they're on these blue light emitting devices, it can actually interrupt with their uh, melatonin release. So it can affect their circadian um, rhythm and keep them up um, at night. It interferes with the quality of sleep. There we go, back to sleep again. Um, and primarily because we do have internal um, brain components that are very susceptible to that blue light source. And the reason for that is the original source of that blue light comes from our sun. So the intensity of the blue light from the time the sun is up high to the time the sun makes it over to the horizon will actually decline as the day goes on. So it's a signal to our body, it's time to wind down. You have anatomic and physiologic, especially 
um, immunologic changes throughout your body when that blue light content changes, changes. Um, and so, yeah, we're seeing the effects of blue light in the young patient population. Um, with older, that continues on probably through teenage years, um, early adulthood, through college years. Um, and then I'm seeing in some of my older patients, probably in their, um, some in their 30s and onward is systemic diseases, unfortunately. Um, health issues from the neck down can also affect your eyes. Um, for example, hypertension, blood pressure problems, diabetes is a very common one. So unfortunately, one of the things that I, re that I see often and refer out for a lot is diabetic retinopathy, where we see um, abnormal changes, inflammatory bleeding changes in the back of the eye, the retina, um, out of those blood vessels that is linked, directly linked to um, abnormally high blood sugar levels. Um, so metabolic disease would be another, another big change that we're seeing um, in the clinical setting. So we do a lot of referrals for that. So, um, the, so for example, um, you have for diabetes, you have type one and type two. In type two patients, we find diabetic retinopathy, which can compromise their vision. And if left untreated, can cause you to go blind, unfortunately. Um, we're seeing it in the older population. In some of our younger population, we're seeing type one diabetes affect their eyes. So for example, my most notable case was a patient um, who was um, in their early twenties um, who worked in a field that requires very good vision. It was um, for safety reasons, you have to have really good vision. And there's a lot of fields like that, petroleum engineering, um, you know, electrical stuff. And so you, you really need um, good vision to be able to do what this individual needed to do. Um, and being a type one, um, type one diabetes is very aggressive. You have to really keep tight control of the blood sugar. Type one individuals just don't have insulin to be able to cut down that sugar when they consume it. Um, and unfortunately, this individual, um, through the early months of COVID, really let themselves go and let themselves eat whatever they wanted to eat. Um, and this individual came in with a visual complaint of um, blurred vision that was onset for probably the last couple of months. And, um, you know, they, they just kind of played it off like it was no big deal. And then finally um, had enough time to get their eyes checked. And so when this individual came in, the reason through the examination, the reason for blurred vision wasn't because their vision was not right in their glasses. It wasn't a glasses or a consequence problem. It was because there was a lot of bleeding and swelling in the back of the eye, in the retina from prolonged high blood sugar. Um, so we were able to rapidly make the diagnosis and strategically and rapidly refer that patient into the retinal specialist where that individual um, got treatment. So treatment for that condition, and, and this is becoming more commonplace, unfortunately, um, typically would be injections of anti-growth hormone injections to stop the inflammatory process, to stop the mediators, the cytokines, for example, from causing the retina to, to bleed and swell. So this individual, several, after several treatments, um, was able to improve vision because the swelling had gone down significantly. So at the time, that individual, even though they were still getting care with the retinal specialist, and retinal specialist 
is um, an ophthalmologist who's trained under the MD track, the medical track, and specialized after many years of additional training in the care of the retinal, then the retina on the back of the eye. So the retinal specialist sent the patient back to us for another routine exam where this individual who was previously 2100 and on the brink of losing their job, their livelihood, was able to bring this individual back down to about 2025, a very soft 2020. So that was more than enough to be able to um, keep their job. Um, and the prescription change was radically different. Um, and so that's, again, going back to what I was saying earlier, another example of how physical optics, a pair of glasses that fixes you externally is so heavily tied into your overall physiologic and anatomic function. Um, so that's probably the most notable one. Um, and then probably another notable one in the much older geriatric population, I would say 70 years old and above, sort of similar um, processes. You can have type two diabetes that would undergo the same process that we would refer and treat the same way. Um, and then in our much older patients, unfortunately would be macular degeneration where a similar type of inflammatory process occurs in the retina and again, causes the retina to um, bleed and swell. Um, and if left untreated, you will lose vision and you can't recover that. So those are some of the most um, notable cases besides routine care. I mean, um, you know, we see patients for just regular care of all ages. You know, I broke my glasses. Can you check and make sure my retina is also healthy? So that's all part of the comprehensive exam. We, we check the vision and then we check the rest of the eye to make sure all the, the visual functions um, are normal. Yeah. So those are some of the more notable cases. Yeah. Well, I know, especially a lot of what we hear about is that first group, the children and like the adolescents. Um, mm -hmm. I'm wearing the blue light glasses right now. Um, no, they, feel <laughs> they do. They definitely help. Yeah, I could tell. Um, Good. But so that's like mostly what we hear about. So I didn't really think about how some of like those more systematic, like systemic diseases or like the mm -hmm. diabetes really affects um, your eyesight. Um, but kind of because we're towards the end of the interview, um, one of the questions that we like to ask everyone who comes on this podcast, um, is what is a day in the life of an optometrist? Like, so what is like your daily schedule? Um, just kind of a basic life of what you do. Okay. So my daily schedule actually starts with, um, setting it all up the day before. <laughs> so, um, when I'm done with clinic the day before I get through all of my charts. So my rule in clinic is get through the charts as efficiently as you can never, ever leave the clinic unless you can't control it with an unfinished chart, because then you're susceptible to forgetting or your team members, your staff's forgetting, or for whatever reason, life happens, you know, you could go home and if you've got family, you've got kids, something could happen and, and you just forget. So my rule is, so I break my day into two parts, my morning clinic session and my afternoon clinic session, all of the morning. So within the morning clinic session, I have the early morning and then I have the late morning. So the more efficient I am in clinic in between patients, I'm on, oh, that's the other thing. Leave your cell phone behind. I'm not on my cell phone at work. I, if I tell my family, if there's a family emergency, you call my work. You literally call the landline because I don't have my phone with me. And I find the phone, this is something that I discovered years and years ago when I was actually in clinical training as an optometry student. If I have my phone with me, just 
it buzzing is distracting to me. And I have to waste mental energy to tell myself, don't look at it. To me, I, I can't, I can't do that. Um, and so I control how I, how efficient I am by just putting that away. So that's how I prepare kind of every day. Um, and so I make sure I'm efficient with all of my charts. As a matter of fact, at the end of that work day, I look ahead of time. Um, so if you quarter your work schedule, so early morning, late morning, early afternoon, late afternoon, I can look at the first quarter of patients of who's coming in. So I look at their, their, um, their patient history, who it is, are they a family? Are they routine care? Do they have specialty testing? What's their eye history like? And I've done it for so long that I could just look at it without taking notes. And then, um, so I look at the first quarter and then I kind of just glance the at the rest of the schedule. Are there, are there any outliers that pop out to me? And that's the power of being in private practice. If there was an issue, I can have our team members first thing when they get in the morning to remedy it. Of course, we're not 100% perfect, but that's how you prepare. You prepare for the day by setting the stages to prepare the day before, if that makes any sense. Um, and so I look at the schedule ahead of time. It's almost like when your teacher gives you that syllabi, you're looking to see, exactly, you're looking to see, and that's the other thing I learned, I learned, you can't procrastinate. And so when I get in in the morning, I try my best to get in early, assuming traffic lets me. So I get in and I do the same thing. I look at the schedule the day before to make sure I'm done with all the charts, because once a day is done, it's done. And then I look at the first quarter and then I start seeing patients. So this, the second time I get, or the morning I get in, that's the second time I'm reviewing it. And if there's anything that's a little bit more difficult, we get patients that we check for glaucoma, the patient's on drops, or this is the patient that's being referred back by one of our um, ophthalmology specialists, I spend a little bit more time with those patients. So the routine ones, it's, it, it's quick, I sh it should be quick, and then I can then allocate more time to the more complicated cases. And so once I get done with that chunk, toward the tail end of that chunk, I'm already looking ahead of the schedule. So I already know as soon as I walk through that door, I know who I'm seeing. I know what their chief complaint is. I know what their background is. You know, what's their health background? Do they have any diseases that could affect their eyes? Um, and so before I walk in, I'm not just looking at that. I focus on what I'm going to do in the exam room. So I'm going to check their vision. I'm going to check the health of the eye. I've already decided whether or not I need to dilate that patient, do the, some extra testing. Um, and so by the time I'm done with all of my testing, because I've already I've laid so much groundwork, that patient management, the last, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes that I get to spend with the patient to put everything together so that patient management, that patient consultation part is the most important part for me. Everything else that I do is, is to basically bring me to where I can consult with a patient and be an effective provider. You could, you could ace all of your classes, you could ace all of your clinicals, you could have a million and one distinctions off of whatever associations, medical optometry associations, but your patients only remember you in the last five, 10 minutes of the exam, because the whole time as a patient, you're like, oh my God, here's another test. Oh my God, they're asking me what's better, one or two. You know, you, your patient, as a patient, you're owed that summary. It's like reading that book. You know, you go through all these chapters, but that end has to really count. And everything that I do is leading up to that. I wanna be effective, especially, especially probably 
the the most sort of sad sadly but most prolific condition that we're struggling with as a society as an international like health crisis is diabetes it's so it's so awful um and it affects your organs it affects your limbs it affects your vision from an overall quality of five of life it's awful and medications can only get you so far so the last moments i'm tying everything into the patient I'm tying everything in for the patient. This is how your visual function is affected by your overall health. I'm not here to scare you. I'm here to give you the tools so that you can make your medications that you're taking more effective. And I'll quote studies after study and I'll let them know, look, you're taking these pills. You know there are side effects, but wouldn't it be so much cooler if you're taking these pills while also strategizing by changing your nutrition a little bit, by changing your overall physical lifestyle a little bit. And I always, always, always remind patients that health is not a number. Yes, if you're healthy, eventually some of those excess weight will be shed. But if the only thing you're gonna focus on is that number is, oh, I need to lose five pounds. I need to, you know, there's another event coming up or whatever. All you're doing is setting yourself, your mental health up for, a lot of stress and anxiety and you end up going down that rabbit hole of yo-yo dieting. And that is why dieting doesn't work. It has to be a nutritional lifestyle change. And that's kind of at, at the end of it all, I think where I'm at right now is where I'm able to tie in all of what I have explored as far back as my high school years. I mean, I'm throwing a little bit of mental health strategies at them. I'm throwing anatomy, physiology, vision, you know, I have been managing a private practice and now I'm building my own private practice. So there's that little bit of entrepreneur. Um, and through it all, I've just learned after so many years of what I like, what I don't like, being proud of what I like and don't like and setting my own goals to where, you know, everything that I do is setting the stage for my success. I don't compare my success to anybody else's except the successes that I've laid out for myself. So that would be the other thing kind of goes back into what you guys talked about just with being in high school and being really stressed out. Um, mental health issues is a big deal for our society. It's a big deal for me personally. It's a big deal for um, my family. It's a big deal for my friends, my patients and the community and the world in general. And I think at the end of the day, you just have to know what you want to handle what you can proudly handle. And it's okay to not be able to handle everything. It's okay, like in simplest terms, to not answer that text message that your friend sent you. You know, our family, I'll give you a personal example. We, our family, we're scattered all throughout the United States. I even have family overseas. And so when we have text messages, we do huge group text messages. I mean, like 20 something people in a text message. So if I don't have my phone, when I pick up my phone, I'm like reading like, paragraphs upon paragraphs it's like a book and it's cute but at the same time if I let it distract me in clinic then now I'm a less effective clinician then I'm going to stress about it when I go home and then the guilt I have about it is not easy to handle so I tell my family I, I premise everything look I love you guys but I can't you know you and then sometimes you have to tell your friends that too sometimes you have to you know when you guys are older and you have a family you have a spouse you have children Sometimes you're going to have to tell your children that. And, you know, I guess the question is, well, is that really work-life balance? It is. It is because when I'm at home, 
six o'clock, I walk out that door. Sometimes I have to stay later, but when I walk out that door, I get in the car, nothing is on about work. Nothing is on. My family time is mine. I, you know, focus on eating healthy, you know, staying active. We, we cook together, we get ready together and we wind down together. We spend a lot of time. If we're watching a show, we're not each watching our individual shows. We do things together. So that togetherness, I do believe makes up for the fact that I'm kind of departed from the, the family aspect at work. And so that's worked for me for many, many years. And that's probably something I want to pass on to you guys is just being okay with maybe not being your full self within the context of what other people expect you to be, but knowing that everything that you do is to the best of your ability and that it's okay to fail a little bit because if you fail, that means that you can think about your failure and then you can hone in on what works and what doesn't work the next day or the next year or the next 10 years. Life is short and long at the same time. It's short in that it's too short for you to worry about things you can't control, but then it's long enough to where you can kind of modify certain things and see its final outcome. If it doesn't work, you have the ability to kind of change some things and don't let other people stress you out so much, you know, let them, let them tell you what their opinions are and what they're like, you can take what everything I say today with a grain of salt. It's what's worked for me. But I would never be out, I would never be the one to be out there and say, well, if it's worked for me, it's got to work for all of you guys. No, not necessarily, because the path that I've taken where it's all over the place, that's that's stress inducing. That's terrible. Like, what if what if you, you know, what if you keep taking all these paths and next time you next thing you know, you're like 40 years old and you haven't amounted to anything because you tried so many things. So, and I've been through that. I mean, I actually was like, the fifth oldest optometry student there. And it's only because it's only because everybody went to like college straight out of high school. I took a year off. I took a year off out of high school to go to work. I took a year and a half off out of um, graduate or out of undergrad to before I went to graduate school. And as long as you stayed busy, as long as you can always reflect back and have a reason for why you did what you did and be proud of that reason, even if it wasn't the best reason, that's you. That's you developing your character. That's you owning up to who you are, regardless of who or what society thinks you need to be or where you need to be at this time, as long as you have a valid reason and that reason is yours. You guys are going to make, you guys are going to be like the awesome future we're looking for. And it's, I just find it so fascinating that you're interested in all this stuff and just listening to, um, you know, the different pathways that people took to get to where they are. There's more than one pathway. Don't ever feel bad if you didn't take that cookie cutter pathway. You'll get there. If there's will, there's a will, there's a way. As cliche as that sounds. Yeah. Well, Dr. Graham, we just wanted to thank you so much for, um, having this meeting and educating us and our listeners, um, not just about optometry, but also like keeping in touch with mental health, um, work-life balance, and the importance of a good night's sleep. As you know, as much as we hear that, I think it really is underrated and you're, you bring it into light again, definitely helps. Um, yeah, it sounds like you've just had like such an incredible path and you're extreme, extremely passionate about what you do now, which is really inspiring, honestly. So, um, yeah, thank you. And it was really great to hear from you. 
It's you're, you guys are very welcome. If you guys ever have any questions, don't hesitate to call me, text me, or um, email me. I, you guys have all of my contact information. Um, and I'd be happy to help you in any way that I can. Yeah, thank you so much. You're welcome. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Enjoy your summer. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. You don't get to have your summers. It's all the same. <laughs>